you know, I guess something that typically that always comes up is like with computers, you know, we have this phrase called hacking. And I think a lot of people, you know, that are not in programming probably think of hacking as like, you know, they read about the Sony hacks or, you know, the FTX hack or whatever. And they think about hacking as, as far as breaking into a system. Really hacking is just like, like a really applied problem solving. It's figuring out a way to do something that, you know, that, that you have normal blockers in your way. And I think that like, Every real estate deal is like, ha you know, you, there's some sort of hacking that you have to do to like make it all fit. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview dive deeper and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20 year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, it's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to Passive Wealth Principles. We got another awesome episode with Cody Littlewood. Cody Littlewood is, is a friend of mine. He is in the software world. He has been building software programs for some of the big, you know, commercial real estate titans, you know, the JLLs and the Avis Young and others and building out these applications. But really what he did is he started pivoting from being a limited partner and started investing into his own deals and build out his own commercial real estate investing. We get into some of the details, the technical details, how he sources his acquisitions, how as a software you know, programmer, developer, he uses that thought process to dive into even how he structures his pipeline and the funnels of the deals that he's looking at, how he's also created some unique partnerships. We barely tipped the edge of the, the new uh, podcast that he's launched, Your Next 10 Million. There's some details into the show notes. It's a fantastic conversation. And really also pay attention for when he lived in Argentina and what it was like going to some of the soccer matches down there and how he was probably risking his life to go watch a soccer match. Now, let's dive into this episode with Cody Littlewood. Littlewood. What's up, my friend? It's been a while since we've hung out. I know I hung out with you in Miami and you introduced me to the like, 
one of now like my top favorite restaurants that I recommend to people <laughs> all over the world. I, I, I pronounced it as Caillou for a long time. It's actually Q, it's, but it's spelled K-Y-U. And I actually went down to Mexico City to go to their second opening. And now they have a third ah, one in no New way. York City. And, you know, actually I found out that they split some of their ownership group. But hey, man, welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to see you again. So you live in Miami. But what I'd like to do is, is for the people that, that don't know you, kind of give a, a background, you know, and I go, go ahead and take some, some time because I, I, I find, and also the uh, listeners love hearing your kind of backstory to where you kind of are today. And then we can dive into a few different areas uh, about you know, your, your tech startup, your, you know, investing, and then it's this amazing podcast that you have, you know, going to the next 10 million. Yeah. Um, so my name is Cody Littlewood. I, uh, I'm from Utah. I'm like a 12th generation Utah or something. I don't know, not 12, but a long time. My family's been there since the very beginning. I live in Miami, Florida now. I uh, originally got into, I mean, this is all about passive wealth. So, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an active real estate investor. I have a, you know, a, a boutique private equity firm where we invest in value add multifamily in the Southeast. But originally I started in tech. Uh, I, uh, you know, I've always been an entrepreneur. I, I, you know, used to haul dirt around, uh, you know, I, I literally would move dirt from one block to another for a neighbor's, uh, topsoil for her garden to, uh, earn money to buy a BB gun. So I've always kind of had it in my blood. Um, I went to college and lost maybe a little bit of that, lost my way a little bit, um, then found my way back and I started a, um, just out of college, I, I went and worked for a startup and went and worked in the corporate world. And then I started my own firm, which is a uh, software, professional software engineering and design services firm. And uh, we build software for many large companies, but particularly in the commercial real estate space. So JLL is a customer, Avis and Young's a customer, Property Radar, et cetera. So we, uh, uh, that's currently what we do. Uh, basically building custom software in, in, you know, in, in that space, largely in that space. I, uh, you know, about five or six years ago, or maybe a little further back than that, even I started having some kind of big checks written to the IRS and I wanted to stop doing that. I also, this business had kind of a lot of ups and downs and, and I mean, generally up, right. But a business cash flows are, you know, maybe not as durable as real estate cash flows. So the two kind of combinations of wanting to find some tax efficiency in my life, um, because I was tired of writing, I, I, I was telling somebody the other day on another podcast actually that you know i think if every american had to write a check to the irs at the end of the year to pay their taxes like the tax rate would be zero right because as entrepreneurs right at the end of the year you know or you know september or october rolls around you know because all of us delay our i don't think anybody files on time as, as an entrepreneur you know and you have to write that check right uh that's a very different feeling than just having it taken out of your you know you never even see it hit your bank account. But when you have, when you see it in your bank account and you're like, man, I could do X, Y, Z with that money, but it's got to go to the IRS. I mean, that is a very different feeling. So I think it motivates us all to, uh, to find some tax efficiency in our life. So between that and then also wanting to build a better foundation for my family, you know, if the business ever 
you know, went bust or had a bad year, et cetera. I wanted to build some more stability for my family. So anyway, so that's, uh, you know, so I started, uh, started investing in real estate, kept doing, you know, typical stuff, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger deals. And, uh, I really fell in love with it. And so about three years ago, four years ago, I put a CEO in place in my firm or sorry, in, in, in the real estate firm. And, uh, I sit on the board now but it's turned mostly passive for me. I spend maybe only a couple hours on it a week and I devoted my time full time to real estate investing. And I started a firm, um, with my partner and, uh, we, uh, between myself and my business partner, we have 1500 doors under management and, uh, you know, we're on track to hopefully, uh, buy, buy another, you know, thousand doors, 800,000 doors over the next, uh, over the next year or so. And, uh, Hope to keep continue to grow that eight hundred thousand doors or eight hundred to a thousand doors. Eight hundred to a thousand. Yeah, yeah. If I, uh, if that's, I that's gonna doors. be that's gonna be the, that's gonna be the title. Cody is planning to buy eight hundred thousand doors in the next year. Don't set me up for uh, you know. Don't set me up for don't set me up for failure. I got to commit to these goals. So whatever you put in this title, I've got to go it's hit it. And there eight hundred thousand doors in the next twelve months. I love Blackstone it. portfolio. Or bigger yeah, than Blackstone. So you, uh, where'd you go? To, where'd you go to college? And when did you? I study? went to school in Utah, Utah State. Okay. And did you study computer programming or computer science or? No, I like I said, I lost my way. I, I studied journalism, and uh, I kind of, you know, I it took me to the end of my degree to realize that, you know, to realize what that profession really was. <laughs> You know, I, I was enamored with the ideals of the profession that never really saw it come through in the, uh, in the actual practice of the profession. So I, uh, you know, and, and I also, you know, it wasn't really my natural sweet spot anyways. So when I got out of school, I kind of started gearing more towards, I didn't want to restart my degree. So I started gearing more and more towards the marketing side of the degree and uh, started taking internships specifically in the marketing side of the degree. And then I just kind of kept moving more and more towards the business side. Um, I, I've always written code. Uh, I've been a kind of a, an amateur programmer since I was like 13. I, bought, I had my first like Macintosh classic, wrote basic code, did like all, uh, you know, on, on my dad's Windows machine. And I mean, all sorts of stuff growing up. So it was a natural fit. I went and worked in marketing for a software company and then started picking up programming again. I've never necessarily been big on certificates or degrees. I think I, I, I haven't let my degree dictate where I go. I've, I've always just kind of figured it out along the way. I've, I've learned, I, I have a pretty good track record of like picking something up and saying, and diving headfirst into it. And, uh, just, uh, you know, there's no better teacher than, uh, than experience. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. As far as hearing that, you know, as far as journalism marketing, actually, that was the first thing that I got into. I thought I was going to do uh, marketing and I really loved marketing classes. I ended up kind of shifting away from that. I, I got into some psychology, loved psychology. Cause I think that plays, you know, kind of hand in glove with marketing as a whole. And then it ended up being entrepreneurship and then, you know, business and international real estate and some other things. But you mentioned that you wrote code as a kid. 
you know, or you did things and stuff like that. So it was like, you know, what sparked that interest? What, you know, uh, you know, led you down that path of writing code? Uh, and what were some of the things that you initially started with? You know, I, I just like solving problems. You know, I like, I, I think everything that I've, you know, I like tinkering. I like solving problems. I think I've always been a, a fairly good problem solver. And so that's all really like programming is um, on a really micro level. It's doing it over and over and over and over again, um, just solving little bit, little problems at a time. Um, and that's actually one of the big things I like about real estate investing. I like solving problems um, and putting stuff together. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, I just, I don't know. I, I just always been a tinker. I've always been kind of a nerd. I, uh, you know, I used to always have my nose in a book. Um, and I don't know, you know, just, I, those, those were the types of things that interest me. I did, I wasn't a big, uh, I, I didn't play many sports in call, you know, in high school. I just, uh, was kind of a nerd. I, I love that. The, the, the problem solving aspect of it. And, and actually I was at lunch the other day and one of my friends, his son wants to do computer science or, you know, kind of programming stuff in college. And one of the colleges or a couple of the colleges require physics as a core component of that. And he didn't want to take physics. And so he was like not selecting to go to some of these colleges because there was physics. And then, you know, like the other friend that I was sitting there was like, yeah, physics, I don't understand. It's kind of dumb. And, th and then I saw that and thought about it for half a second. I was like, but physics to me is first order principles of kind of everything. And so it's, it's more of a thought process, you know, the velocity and how things work and gravity and creating, you know, constants and other things. And you have frameworks that then lead into computer programming and, and computer programming is more ones and zeros, you know, kind of binary typically that you're trying to solve, but it's like, then you get into the real world is like, some of these things are not zero sum. Some of these things are not binary and specifically around real estate. So how have you used some of your problem solving skills as a investor in, in yours in the real estate, you know, world? You know, I guess something that typically that always comes up is like is with computers, you know, we have this phrase called hacking. And I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, that are not in programming, probably think of hacking as like, you know, they read about the Sony hacks or, you know, the FTX hack or whatever. And they think about hacking as, as far as breaking into a system. Really hacking is just like, like a really applied problem solving. It's figuring out a way to do something that, you know, that, that you have normal blockers in your way. And I think that like every real estate deal is like, ha you know, you, there's some sort of hacking that you have to do to like make it all fit whether it's like the structure of a deal or finding the right, like, you know, mix of like a capital stack or I don't know, you know, the right, you know, I, I just always feel like there's some sort of, you know, there's some sort of problem. And you know what else I've also found is a lot of people, a lot of people think there's only one way to do a deal, right? And like, that's the way that they've always done the deal. And that's the way that they think the deals are done. And so all the time I'll ask people like, well, can you do it this way? And I'll be like, no, no, you definitely can't do it that way. That's, you know, like, and, but then if I like start picking at that problem enough, you know, and like hacking at that problem enough and like asking other people and like, okay, let me see if I can find, talk to this person or this person or this person. 
then I, you know, like, let me get a different opinion from this, this attorney, or let me get a different opinion from this deal guy or whatever. Right. And then all of a sudden I figure out like, oh, I can't do it that way. Or, oh, I can't do it exactly that way. But like, here's another solution that like gets me to the same result. So I would say that is like, you know, there's always another way. There's always another way to get something done and like hacking solutions together. I think it's probably been probably one of the biggest, uh, biggest lessons um, or like things that I've applied from my programming background into real estate. I, I think that's a, an amazing answer because I had that same exact thing. So it was like years ago when I started my private equity, you know, real estate company, uh, I was doing fun documents and I hired an attorney, a securities attorney, and he kept like asking me all these questions like, how do you want the waterfall and how do you want the, the, you know, the, the pref and how do you want that paid out? And what do you want catch up provisions and part of these other things? And I was like, ah, you know, just like what standard, like, you know, do, do, do the standard, you know, what, whatever that is, oh, what's, what's normal. And it was like, the reality is there's nothing normal like yeah, yeah, in fun no documents. Normal. It's totally creative blank slate almost, so to speak. And, and, uh, you know, which is interesting because also how like payouts and how prefs and how things, and you know, and this is obviously technical kind of details when somebody's investing as, a, as an LP or as a GP in, in some of these deals, but it's like as creative as you want to. And then sometimes the things that I did in a fund were like off-putting to investors, but it was like the economics were actually better to them. And it was like, oh, I should have just presented it this way instead of that way. And it's kind of learning uh, by default. You talk about being a, a professional real estate investor now. You're doing that. Your private equity, your boutique fund is doing it. You know, you said you mentioned value add multifamily. So do you have uh, some kind of buy box or deals that you've systematically applied, you know, your problem solving and how, how do you approach your investment kind of thesis or strategy? You know, we're typically trying to buy in the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, couple markets in Alabama that we like. Uh, we're buying like 150 to 225 unit complexes. Um, we're typically trying to buy like a class, you know, like a B minus asset and like an A minus, you know, A area. You know, what we want to be, what we want to be is we want to be a, you know, we're looking for a tired asset, like an asset that, you know, is not, we're very, very rarely doing like a total gut, you know, not a like a total gut, you know, change out the sewer uh, you know, change out the sewage system, change out the electrical, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're generally trying to stay like 1980s or newer to avoid the electrical and, and, and plumbing issues. You know, uh, sometimes we'll look at a deal that, that makes sense in the seventies, but you know, eighties, nineties, two thousands deals, we're looking for deals that are a little tired that, you know, are well occupied, but have not had, you know, that are not achieving the rents that their peers are achieving because the units haven't been improved for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years sometimes, you know, so some, some of the units we buy have original cabinetry from the 1980s, you know, and original linoleum can't, you know, I, I, linoleum is probably a word that my kids won't even know what that means. Um, you know, I, I don't know that they even make it anymore, right? Because everything's LVL and, uh, you know, and, and other products and vinyl. So, yeah, so, and, and, but we're looking to be in a good neighborhood, right? A neighborhood where families want to live. Um, we're very family oriented. Uh, you know, all of our investment thesis around providing homes for families, um, providing amenities that are geared towards families, um, designs that are geared towards families, fa you know, places that, you know, are well-designed, 
you know, and, and well renovated that families can be, you know, proud to live in and, you know, that want to live in. So that's kind of a, you know, our general thesis will come in, uh, you know, we'll do the value add throughout, you know, a couple of years, um, you know, improve the curb appeal, improve the units, take care of any deferred maintenance, make it a really great place for families to live, put in some family oriented programs. Um, we do some give back stuff too, like back to school programs, um, and different holiday events, et cetera, uh, to make it feel a little bit more like a community. And, uh, you know, we increase the rents. Usually we are very long, long-term holders. We, you know, we're looking, we tell all of our investors look 10 years down the road with us. You know, we won't sell unless there's a meaningful, there's a meaningful reason that we need to sell to protect the equity um, or the returns. You know, we, uh, we prefer to return capital through a refinance event that, you know, recapitalize the deal through a refinance event, return a bunch of capital and then cash flow for years and years and years to come. I've never, never totally understood why people like to, I've always been annoyed as an LP because I'm an LP as well. And I've always been annoyed as an LP when somebody tells me they're going to buy something for eight to 10 years and then they sell it 15, 16 months, 18 months, two years down the road. You know, I got a capital gains problem. I got to go redeploy the capital and I probably have a bunch of depreciation recapture. And it's like, okay, yeah, but and we just finished the value add. So now we got the stabilized asset, like the riskiest part's done. Right. Like, let's hold this thing. <laughs> so um, so I kind of am scratching my own niche that, you know, my own needs there. And yeah, so I guess that's kind of our general buy box. Uh, we have an incredible acquisitions team ran by my partner. Uh, we underwrite two to three hundred deals a month and we do four to five deals a year. So it's about one in every four hundred deals that we look at. We actually do. Um, you know, we write a lot of offers, um, but we're just, you know, we're just incredibly picky and only so much time in the year. So. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guest on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. You know, I, I, I want to take you back as far as, you know, you have some interesting international experiences. Stuff. I don't want to do that yet. I actually want to stay on this thread. Your acquisition team, you, you said you, you know, are looking at or underwriting doing a couple thousand deals. Like, talk me through, like, what is your workflow? Well, how do you uh, analyze that many deals? What are you doing? And I, I know, obviously, your partner is running that. But like, you know, I'm assuming you de- help design uh, that process. I, I honestly, I cannot take credit for designing any bit of that process, but my partner, my partner can, um, I, I can take credit for picking a good partner. Right. So, <laughs> so, so anyways, uh, he's done an incredible job. He's, uh, you know, he's a, 
you know, uh, uh, charter holding CFA ex JP Morgan guy. So I, I, I do feel like, uh, you know, ex private, you know, large private equity guy. I feel like we have pretty impressive, um, institutional level deal flow for the size of firm that we are, but he essentially, he's a team of analysts. Uh, so I think probably he's a team of like three analysts. And then he also has a, a team of like five off market folks and they are, uh, they are just pouring, pouring, pouring through deals. And obviously we do not rely on, you know, everything goes through our investment committee. Everything is like signed off on by our investment committee. We do deep due, due diligence, but all we're looking to do is to get to a quick no, right. Uh, to get the very top level, um, you know, very top level, uh, underwriting through to get offers out that work for us, that we know that we feel confident that we can stand behind. And then, uh, you know, and then to move them to the next stage, you know, it's built our deal flow a lot because, you know, brokers know they're going to get an offer from us. I think people are scared to, you know, if their offer's not close to the whisper price, because sometimes we're like, we can't do it for them. Like, you know, we, we can't make it make sense, but we always get people an offer, uh, especially with brokers that we've good relationship with. And although it may be lower than what the, you know, the winning bid, you know, it still makes their buyer matrix look good, right? Their, 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 their plan is to go back to their, to their seller with a buyer matrix and, you know, Hey, I got nine offers and here's where they all, you know, here's where they all land. Here's, here's the stronger ones, et cetera. Um, we're a strong buyer. So, uh, you know, it's a respectable offer that we usually make, but anyway, so that helps our deal flow. And then we, you know, that's really what we focus on. Uh, is just like top of pipeline, whittling it down. It goes to more senior analysts and eventually gets to our investment committee um, where, you know, my partner really pits, pokes a bunch of holes in it. And then we get our, you know, property manager involved. We get uh, asset management, uh, our VP of asset manager, uh, our VP of asset management, Jonathan involved. You know, we dig into it a little bit more, uh, you know, and eventually, you know, as we get closer and closer down that pipeline, more senior and senior people look at it. So really it's just a, it's a, it's a pipeline, like any other kind of pipeline, um, where we're starting at the top, working our way down more senior and senior people look at it. Um, and by the time it gets to our desk, you know, we're, 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 we're looking at a bunch of deals a month, but we're, you know, me personally and my partner personally, we're not looking at 200, 300 deals a month. You know, we're looking at, you know, the top 40, you know, or my partner's probably looking at the top 40. I'm probably looking at the top 20. I mean, I love the way that you think. And, I, and the reason I ask that is because, you know, everybody has their own, you know, some people love doing all the deals. Like they just love digging into the details and finding them. But I found that the most successful people have some kind of system, some framework. And, you know, it's like, hey, I have a funnel. This is how I do this. I go look at 2000, you know, 200 a month. And here's it goes to this and does this and down to that. And then it produces X, you know, and, you know, you know it's just like a, a, a Again, it's a formula. There's lots of ways to skin a cat. I, I've heard, uh, yeah, I've heard that. I've said that before. And I was actually asking one time, I was like, who started skinning cats? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question, actually. Um, I, it's kind of grotesque, you know, and and who, who uh, you know, and how many ways are there really to skin a cat, right? Like there's probably only a couple. I, I recently discovered a, a, an Instagram page. It's like, uh, what if? It was like, or what if happens or something? I was like, what if the sun exploded? Like, what if we went to new World War III? So maybe they'd be like, what if we counted all the ways that we could skin a cat? Uh, <laughs> you know, we actually broke awesome. down all the ways. I don't know because I've heard that saying a lot. And it was the one time I was sitting there, I was like, why are people skinning cats? Like, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, 
It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not particularly like I, I have a dog. I don't have a cat. I've had cats in the past and I like dogs more than I like cats. So, um, but I just also don't think that uh, people should be cruel to animals. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> you had, or I uh, am familiar and know that you spent some time internationally. Uh, you know, you spent some time. So I, I'd love to dive into that. You know, you know, what was that story? What, where'd you go live? And, you know, how, how did you end up in South America? So right after college, this is kind of when I went, you know, when I decided to go into more of the marketing and business route, um, originally was I, uh, sorry, I, I was graduating right during the recession. So this is like 2009. And I watched all my friends, like I had a pilot buddy that was serving tables at Ruby Tuesdays. I had another buddy that like had an awesome, you know, mechanical engineering degree that couldn't get a job and another buddy that had an electrical engineering degree that couldn't get a job. And I was like, what in the shit am I going to do with a marketing and journalism degree? So, and this was kind of before I'd started off on, out on my own. So before I'd kind of caught the entrepreneurship bug again in my life, uh, after kind of forgetting it for a little while. I, uh, I decided like, well, this is a great time. And, and, uh, I had had a girlfriend from Argentina and she'd always, you know, ranted and raved about it. And I'd always just read awesome things. And so I ended up applying to a couple jobs down in Argentina. I got one and I moved down there, uh, speaking, uh, I sold everything, um, sold my car, sold everything, canceled my phone bill, blah, 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 et cetera. Actually, no, I, I forgot the only mark I've ever had on my credit score. I forgot to cancel my phone bill um, and they got me um, months later because I, I just uh, it was the one thing I left behind. Anyways, uh, so but I, I sold everything. I moved down there. I didn't speak a word of Spanish and I had to figure it out. Look, the company I was working at was an American investor, you know, and uh, he was, uh, you know, he, he had a bunch of the team down in, in Latin America. And so the team mostly spoke English. Uh, so I didn't really have any trouble at work, but outside of work, like to do anything, uh, there was not a lot of English. And so I had to learn Spanish on the fly. And yeah, and then I ended up roughly spending about five years there before moving back to the States. What was the company that you worked for? Oh, it was a, uh, <laughs> it was a language learning app. It was called MyLingo. So it doesn't exist anymore. It, it was a, uh, it was kind of a, it was, a, it was the investor had had a pretty successful tech exit before and started this app. Um, but this app was not nearly as successful. Let's put it that way. And so that got you down there. And, you know, what were some of the experiences being an immigrant into Argentina? Um, well, I think that, you know, you appreciate the pace of life. Uh, a lot when you first get there. And then over time it becomes irritating and annoying and you want to get stuff done. So I had this like love hate relationship where I had a great quality of life, but then I would try to get something done or something, you know, get something done and I would have to, you know, and I would have to like, and it would take me way, way too long. Nothing was ever on time. Everyone would take their time. You go to a government office and you'd be there at like, 11 a.m. and they just shut the window they're like it's time for mate and they would like leave you waiting there in the line you know lines would be around the blocks and, and you know you knew the line was around the blocks you'd waited in it since 7 a.m 
you know, already. Uh, I don't know. There was things that like were infuriating. The uh, the Argentine culture is uh, both awesome and uh, very different from ours. And, uh, you know, it, it cuts both ways, right? Like there, but there was also like amazing, right? Like I, I also, I lived like a king. I think I, you know, definitely had some of the best quality of life of my life. I was, um, I was earning American dollars, uh, trading them on the black market in Argentina because there was a, there was the, the, they had capital controls because in socialist countries, when they have flights of their own currency and, and, and hyperinflation, they have to lock the capital controls. And so they, they would, they would fix the, they would fix the peso to the dollar at four to one, but everyone knew like the entire world knew like it's worth 15 to one. And so you could trade at the, at the, you could buy certain things, certain prices, like certain food were fixed at a four to one ratio, but. Um, but everyone knew it was 15 to one and you could only trade it at a bank for four to one, but you could trade it on the quote unquote black market. But the black market was not that black. It was like the, uh, like a police officer would be standing next to you as you were making the trade. They would hire the police officers to protect the, to protect them because they had a bunch of cash on hand. Right. So it wasn't like, it was weird. It was like this unwritten agreement. They said it was a black market, but it wasn't really, it was like this everyone knew about it i mean you probably see the president herself um at that time in there making the trade so but in but long story short i was i was trading dollars i was earning dollars trading dollars at 15 to 1 and paying for life at 4 to 1 in an already very cheap society compared to like our you know but compared to our standards and so at one point i remember at one point i was trying to spend $2000 a month on my lifestyle and i couldn't like I would go to restaurants every night. I would go to bars every night. I would go to, you know, it was it was an incredible time. Uh, it doesn't work like that anymore. Um, they've removed a lot of the capital controls. You know, prices have, you know, moved up to where, you know, uh, you know, they, they've stopped fixing prices. Um, they've started to kind of implement different things where there's no longer that arbitrage in that country. I think there are probably other countries where there is that arbitrage. And that's like one of the things I would recommend for any young person to go do is just like, go live somewhere where you can make like where you can work online or for an American company and you can make American dollars and trade them at the local currency and then live like a king. I mean, I think that's like one of the best life hacks when you're young and single with no kids. I, I know people that even did it with married with kids, but uh, I know a couple guys that did it. But I think for me and my family, it would be a little hard to do now. But it was a it was a, it was a, it was a really fun experience. I just I lived like a king and I great you know great quality of life i had just it was an amazing lifestyle they say that the new york is the city that never sleeps but really buenos aires is the city that never sleeps like you would go to dinner at 10 the bar at midnight and then you'd go to the club at three right and like i i remember i remember going to the office at 9 a.m straight from the club you know, or, 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 or a night where I didn't go out and I'd be going to the office and I'd see people leaving the club at 9am having a beer in the street. Um, I mean, it's, it really is the city that never sleeps. Like people say it's New York. New York's an amazing city. I, I prefer, you know, I think I prefer New York at this point in my life, but like Buenos Aires is definitely the real city that doesn't sleep. I, I, you know, it's crazy that you mentioned that because I've been down to Buenos Aires and I, I did some of the, the currency exchange stuff, but then actually when I went to come back and trade it, I couldn't because Outside of Argentina, nobody would accept Argentine yeah. pesos because I remember like, that. Nah. For sure. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. I was, dang it. Uh, I, I didn't. I didn't 
you know, research, uh, you know, as levels deep, but exactly what you said. Also that what a crazy uh, cultural thing too, is like, because they really do like a lot of Latin American and they siesta, they nap in the afternoon, like they hang out matzo time or whatever and do nothing. And then like going to dinner is like way late. I'm like, I'm ready to go to sleep. And they're like, we haven't even eaten yet. Yeah. My uh, heartburn went off the, off the chain there. So <laughs> it was, uh, it's not, a, not if you're prone to heartburn, it's not a great place to live. Um, <laughs> just cause if you eat dinner at 10 PM, uh, you know, and, and on a weekday or something, you're going to sleep at a normal time. It's a, uh, it's a little rough. Well, yes. Uh, you know, like you said, man. And, uh, oh, which is interesting. I remember, uh, everybody introduced based on if they were either, um, a, a Boca fan or uh, like a, a, Reve, a Revo, Riva fan. Yeah, River fan, the Rio fan or the, the Boca. And they'd be like, oh, and he's so-and-so, and, but he's a Boca, you know, he's a Boca fan, you know? It was just like, and like, there's like a real like divide in the city. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's and, 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 and it's, uh, it's not, it's not like class related either. Um, you know, I always thought it would be, um, because of where the stadiums are located, the river stadiums and like this really nice area in the Boca stadiums and this, you know, uh, traditionally very, uh, poor Italian immigrant, uh, community from it's got, it's got a really cool history. It's a beautiful area. Um, but it's, it's now, it's now become a quite a poor area. Boca is. And, uh, um, but anyways, uh, so I always thought there'd be like a class divide between the, but, but it's not that at all. There are Boca fans that are super well off and live throughout the city. There are river fans, that, you know, not so well off and live throughout the city. Um, it's a, uh, it's an, it's an intense, it's, uh, you know, the, it's the, it's the classic, um, uh, you can, you could hear it from my apartment. Uh, you could hear the river stadium, uh, and it was, it was miles away. Yeah, so that's uh, people that don't know those are soccer teams, and and uh, for the American folks is like, and it is like, you know, serious. Like the 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 Boca Rio, you know, teams against each other. I mean, it's like a Super Bowl, like times a ten thousand. Like, so I used to go to this. Um, I'm not a fan of either of those teams. I'm a fan of a, a of another team called Independiente. And uh, I used to go to the games in this area called Abashaneda. And it was like this, um, it's a it's a little bit of a rougher area by certainly by 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 US standards, even by by uh by by other standards, I think. Um, but they they play a team, uh they play they have a big rivalry as well, um, called Racing. And and when they would play each other, when they would play each other, there would always when you're going into the stadium, it was crazy. Because you would go past the like the gangs, the soccer gangs. They're like, but they're violent gangs, uh, you know. And you'd go past him, and the cops would be on one side, and the gangs would kind of be on the other, and it would just be dead silent. It would be silent walking past this like you know this like powder keg ready to explode. And uh, and then after the games, I swear, one time we were leaving the um, you know one time we were leaving the the, the match. And we were, they, they always let the opposing team leave first and they're supposed to bust them away. And then they let, you have to stay in the stadium because it's, there's so much violence that occurs after the game. So you have to stay in the stadium until the opposing team clears the stadium by a few miles. But they had like held the bus driver, the, the really crazy fans had held the bus driver, um, I don't know, at gunpoint or something, but they turned the bus around and they, they opened the door and they were coming out just as we were leaving the match and the police shot off uh tear gas and so i got tear gassed um i'd never been tear gassed before it's not fun 
I've seen some crazy stuff at these games. It's it's a you know it's it's a real it's a real like you know it's a real adventure for sure. Yeah, that's uh, I mean people in in the states just have no idea like how intense these you know um, matches are you know in the rest of the world they think you know a football game with the the dolphins and the eagles you know and they're like you know rah rah you know you're like no you're not you know like risking your life you know going out there and you're like I'm, am i gonna die i i hope not but uh i i it was it was always a little um you know i bet if you grew up with it maybe it's it's not quite as intense but for me it was like i was like holy cow what what have i got myself into um but it was fun well, I, I do uh, want to make sure to respect your time. And so I have, uh, you know, a few more questions. They're a little bit more rapid fire in nature, but your answers do not have to be rapid fire. I know that, you know, you are avid reader, part of it, because we've hung out a lot and we've talked about different books. And so uh, uh, what is one book that you has made a, a massive impact on you that is not like a mainstream book? Oh man, not a mainstream book. I don't know. Everything I feel, I feel like, I feel like it's hard because within our groups, right? The stuff I'm reading probably isn't mainstream to mainstream, but within our groups, it feels pretty mainstream because a lot of my recommendations come from my friends. You know, I'm going to go, I don't think this is a very mainstream book, even within our groups, although it has been mentioned, but I really love the Naval of, or sorry, the, the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Um, he's just such an interesting thinker. He turned me on to so many, you know, when you actually read through it and then you go through the sources and, and his sources that he lists, et cetera, and read and supported reading, you realize that he, he's done a really great job of distilling other really great thinkers. And then it's, it's turned me on to a lot of like Indian philosophy and, you know, read some books that I just, I, I don't think I would have read otherwise. Um, just some really interesting uh, stuff and uh, he just he's such a the almanac of naval is, is is so cool because it's all about it's a book based on like uh wealth and happiness which are two things i i care a lot about and uh i just i i learned it crystallized so many lessons in my life that maybe i would have never been able to verbalize well or or put into words well it turned me on to so many other interesting thinkers and uh, it's just, uh, I think it's just such a great foundation uh, that you can build from. So back on books, what is the book you've gifted most? Book I've gifted most? It would probably be Naval. That's uh, a book I gift a lot because I don't think many people have it on their shelves. Um, I also have gifted a lot, uh, Never Split the Difference. That's a great, great, great book. I mean, it's, you know, they say about negotiating, but it's so many other things in life in general. So. Um, both fantastic books. And, and I agree. I, I was like, I feel like we're in a paid book club. Like I have to pay to be in this book club. And then we share all these books and we're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. did you read this book? Oh, did you read that book? And I know, like, I know. But yeah, we're, we're all information like, uh, addicts. And I was trying to, uh, condense that is I think just in general that we're very curious in general, you know, it's just like, and there's a lot of people that are not curious at all, like just totally content, you know, on the, the path that they are in life and, you know, not looking around like, why is this a path? How does this work? Why does this, you know, this other way? And so uh, maybe that's the one common denominator is the, the curiosity in general. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what is, and I didn't prep you for this, but like, what is one thing that you have bought, purchased with US dollars 
maybe they could have been Bitcoin or, you know, crypto or something else that you have purchased that has given you the most time back. Oh, man. Um, the most time back. I mean, can it be people or what you be? make? It's whatever you want right. it to be. My, I, my assistant is awesome. Um, she's, uh, she crushes it. She's like my, um, she's like a mixture of a director of ops of my life. And then also just like a, just awesome, uh, executor. And, uh, and she's, she's, she's probably, she saves me a lot of time. I think my next best one, you know, if I, if somebody wants to go out, just buy something, I would say, uh, I really enjoy the Panda planner. It's a, it's a great way to structure your days and like to just be conscious about how you're you're spending your days. And, uh, that to me, I think, you know, it makes sure that I, I, I accomplish the big things every single day, um, that I need to accomplish and, uh, and helps me like think about how I'm structuring my day before the day kicks off. So Panda planner, I've not heard of that. So I will have to check, check that out. So, okay. Panda planner. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it is like, uh, you know, then that's one of the things the, the thesis is that, the secret to the wealthy is they don't trade time for money. They trade money for more time. You know, why do, why do you have a private jet? Well, because it saves you massive amounts of time. It's convenience, you know, and that's like, you know, usually that's like, oh, I don't have to wait in line. I don't have to connect through a hub and spoke, you know, uh, you know, place. You know, those are all massive time savers. And that's, you know, you know, let's just, you know, maybe gloss over the fact that, money's fake yeah you know, we could have an, an entire conversation about you know cryptocurrency and, and money and all these other things we don't have time to get into that maybe we'll have to have a part two or something where we discuss and phil- philosophize about money in general but i go time is real yeah time is very and you real only and have so only. much yeah it's, yeah it's very finite that you're only going to get so much time um and so if you can stop trading your time for money um, that is how you can leverage. And what I believe is what you even mentioned earlier, you are not in your kind of core, you know, key superpower, you know, but I was like, I believe that everybody has a, a purpose. Like they were designed for some reason and that what there's something that you are uniquely skilled, good at. And the more that you can play in your lane on that particular thing, the more that it's better for the world because it really creates the levels of abundance in all different areas. So, and that's what I kind of want to pull into is like, I wanted just to tell you how thankful I am for you, how grateful I am for your, uh, your, your time, your willingness, the way that you show up, uh, every time I've ever met you, every time I've reached out to you, you've been a wealth of information. You know, I know you you broke off even part of your day and came and hang hung out with me and recommended me to restaurants and stuff. So I just wanted to really, you know, let you know how grateful I am for you and the way that you are creating intentionality of our life, I think is making this world a better place. So thank, thank you, you so much, Jake. That's so kind of you, man. I'm really grateful for our friendship. So last thing is I want to know is, you know, if the audience wants to connect up with you, uh, where can they find you and what is an ask? We didn't actually even get a chance to dive into your podcast. You have a new podcast, the the next 10 million, but uh, maybe give some some resources to where people can find you and what is an ask of the audience? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um 
Yeah, uh, you can find uh, you can find your next ten million, which is a podcast where if you want to listen to me and uh, uh, my good friend Pasha interview people who are building really cool businesses and uh, scaling their businesses, scaling investment businesses, um, folks that have uh, built uh, built built something really incredible. You can find us there. Uh, you can also find uh, more information about my firm and our investments that we do at investwithcarbon.com. Um, yeah, man, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta find some time soon, probably maybe after the holidays, but, uh, we gotta find some time soon to have you on ours. Yeah. I'd love that. And that's, uh, I've interviewed Pasha as well. And I, I loved hearing his story and how he, uh, uh, took, you know, poker techniques and then applied that into, you know, reading people and negotiating and other things. And I love how you've taken the, you know, software and, you know, the coding and the problem solving and applying that also to your levels of success and, you know, different ways approaching. And then uh, I'm excited to see what you guys are doing with your podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jake. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Cody. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.RealEstate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.